So welcome to the Legal Cheek podcast, which we're also live streaming this evening on Facebook and Instagram. And I'm here with Jamie Suskind, who is a barrister at Littleton Chambers and the author of this book that you can see here, Future Politics, which is a great read. Um, well worth law students reading, lawyers, really, really, really interesting. I've spent the last week reading it, Jamie. And um, the thing that, um, I think the thing that struck me most was, was it's initially, anyway, in the book, you really do present quite a dystopian vision. I mean, with these, you know, the, essentially what you're saying is, you know, what we've seen at the moment with with um, with tech is almost just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. The rate of change is so fast, and what the the effect of this is going to be, big tech companies and governments having a lot more power. Absolutely. So I think we're at a, a turning point in history, and uh, in the future, those who control the most powerful digital systems will increasingly have a great deal of control over the rest of us. Mm. And really, I wrote the book because I don't think that we are prepared intellectually, morally, certainly not politically, mm. for the world that we're creating. I don't know if I'd call it dystopian, or at least I, what I would say is that the, the future, at least, is still up for grabs. And the, mm -hmm. in that sense, the book is a, a call to arms or a call to action, because I think we all need to step up and make sure that we harness these incredible new technologies for the good of humankind and for the good of democracy and freedom mm -hmm. and justice, uh, rather than letting them become the plaything of a relatively small group of privileged people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that I picked up from the book, though, is that you, you're very much a believer in, in not just the power of tech, but the power of tech to keep evolving. And you, you think that really is an, an evolving at a very fast pace. Mm. And you, you really think that that is almost, it's almost an unstoppable force. And you, you talk, is it Moore's law, the, mm. the computing law about you know which things just the rate of change is getting faster and faster and faster and you, you think you know you say that's not a given but but your take on that is that is very likely to continue look we will have good years and we will have bad years in technological development but mm -hmm. i am confident in at least one thing which is that things are not going to stay the same mm -hmm. and i think objectively we're moving through a period of transition of change that is way faster um than periods of change in at least recent human history. And, you know, there, there were long stretches of human civilization where human beings would die in a world that was very similar to the world that they'd been born into. But even in the course of my lifetime, the world has been transformed, first mm. by the internet. It's incredible we've only lived with smartphones for yeah, since 2009. True, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. this is 2009, just mm. a few years. I was at university then. And uh, social media like Facebook. Yeah. This stuff has been around in the grand sweep of things for the blink of an eye. And I think mm. we sometimes look at technologies and we think, well, that's not working very well or, or that's not evolved or how people expected it. And, yeah. and, you can, and a lot of people use that to write off the whole idea of technological progress. I think that is a mistake. Mm. I think that if you step back, our, our, our computing systems, our non-human systems are becoming radically more capable. Mm -hmm. Technology is be, being dispersed into the world around us in objects and artifacts which we previously never saw as tech. Mm -hmm. And we're producing an extraordinary amount of data compared to the past. Mm -hmm. It's said that, that nowadays, every two hours, we produce 
uh, as much data as humans did from the dawn of time until 2003. And that is, that means that there's a kind of map of our lives that is so comprehensive and so deep. Uh, Mm -hmm. The previous rulers of the past could never have imagined that kind of insight into the human condition. Mm. I I think, I suppose that's what I found a bit scary about the book in that we, you know, we, our digital footprint is, is, is we're putting out there all the time. Yeah. And you know, that could be used against us in all sorts of ways, especially when you look at the same time with, you know, politics getting more extreme and obviously governments getting more powerful and and these companies getting more, I mean look at Apple it's not I mean it's normal to give them your fingerprint you think mm. about that you do that about thinking facial recognition yeah I mean is this something that you feel comfortable doing yourself I mean I do do it I, I use an iPhone like the rest of um well like a lot of people do or, or the equivalent and you know, increasingly systems that can identify us based on our physical characteristics, like our face, or even like our gaits, the way we walk, Mm. Uh, that kind of stuff won't always be optional. I mean, I think you can assume that governments and corporations and the like will wish to use these technologies, which will become very cheap and very efficient, to enforce the rules that that they want to see enforced, Mm. whether those rules are laws or whether they are something else the choices of the companies themselves who knows i mean there's a park in beijing which uh distributes toilet paper according in the public facilities there according to face recognition technology because apparently Mm. they had a problem with people using more than their fair share and i think it would be naive of us to suppose that that is just the start that that is the end or as opposed to just the start Mm. yeah But, but I suppose with the book though, so it does well for, for me as the reader. I found it, it, you know, it was you know fascinating read. But initially, I was thinking quite depressing, dystopian. But then you've got the second half of the book where you're proposing these solutions and new political ideas of how politics needs to respond to the increasing power um, given to corporations and government by tech. And one of the you talk about regulation. You talk about the big companies, the tech companies like Facebook, having to have fairer processes. And actually, we had a story on, on Legal Cheek this afternoon about how Facebook is launching what I think one of its staff termed Facebook's own Supreme Court. I think they then sort of um, pedaled back a bit on that terminology. But, but, um, but you know, you mentioned things like that in the book. And, and then you have mentioned this other idea, which I'd, I'd never heard before. And it's certainly a... Um, you know, appeal to law students and, and lawyers, this idea of a digital separation of powers. Mm. Could you explain a bit more about that? Absolutely. So, so before you get to the digital separation of powers, what I try to do is explain why I think that technologies give power to those who own and control them. Mm-hmm. I think it's quite an intuitive idea, but I think it's also important to try and specify why. And basically I say there are three ways. One is by setting rules that we have to follow. So the fact that you can't stream an episode of Game of Thrones online is down to the digital rights management technology. It's the same reason why you can't uh, copy and paste a song that you buy on iTunes. Mm. So the code itself enforces the rule that that song is only, or that film is only supposed to be used for one purpose. Likewise, when you take a drive in a self-driving car, it might refuse to park on a double double yellow line Mm. or drive over the speed limit. So those who write the rules in technology, those who write the code have a degree of power over us to get us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do and by the way those rules might be laws like you know the the speed limit of the vehicle might be the the national speed limit so they might embody laws but they might 
also just embody rules that the tech firms want to uh, encode into them. So, for example, the car might drive at 10 miles an hour less than the speed limit for insurance reasons. Um, so the people who write the code, firstly, have a kind of power over us. Secondly, there's a power in gathering data about people and watching them. So the more you know about people, the more it is easy to tell what the carrots and sticks are to get them to do things they wouldn't otherwise do. And that can be through simple persuasion, but it can also be through manipulation. Um, it is said that uh, in the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump had, uh, or Cambridge Analytica on, on his behalf, had up to 5,000 data points of information about up to 200 million Americans. And they could use that data, just like uh, online advertisers do, mm -hmm. to target individuals with customized personalized messages in the most persuasive form possible um, so the more we know about people and those who know a lot about us are increasingly inca uh, capable of getting us to do things we wouldn't otherwise do finally technology shapes our perception of the world a lot of your um, readers will be watching us on social media and the truth mm. is that we increasingly rely on digital technology to show us those bits of the world which are not visible to us beyond our immediate perception mm. all of us only sees a, a very small slice of reality and what the algorithms and the systems that present us with information beyond our immediate perception choose to present us with which slice of the world they show us strongly determines um, our sense of right and wrong true and false what we know and what we care about taking a long run up to answer your question because if we think that Tech, that, that technology endows its controllers or its owners with power in one of those three ways, by writing rules, by scrutinizing us, and by controlling our perception of the world, then if we want a, an institution in the future uh, to avoid becoming too powerful, whether that institution is the state or whether it's a private tech firm, mm. what I say is that no individual entity should be able to monopolize all of each of those within a given area so there should mm -hmm. never be any entity that does all the data gathering or all the perception control or all the rule writing mm -hmm. and no individual entity should be able to do all three at the same time mm -hmm. or too much of all three at the same time and what i i sort of lay down a challenge to competition law or antitrust mm -hmm. law as it's called in the states because that breaks up companies based on whether they exploit us economically I suggest we might need regulation to break up companies based on how much power they have, which mm. is a different point. Mm. Facebook doesn't necessarily exploit us economically. It takes something from us which is of relatively little value to us, our personal data, in commercial terms. Uh, but what you might say about Facebook is that it has too much power. Mm. And so competition law is much better able to deal with economic abuses, but we don't yet have competition law that can deal with political abuses. So you think the competition law is out of date, essentially, when it comes to, to tech? To Maybe. this angle, yeah. Mm. Um, so what's your, what's your thoughts on GDPR? The GDPR is obviously not a perfect piece of legislation, but you know, I wrote this book in the States and I do a lot of speaking and mm. chatting to people there, and it's obviously where a lot of technology comes from. And compared to there, I mean, the US is a wild west of data use. So mm -hmm. you, you really have very little control when data is gathered about you, about what may be done with that data, who it can be sold to, uh, and what use can be um, made of it once it's been sold or passed on. The GDPR is a, a remarkable piece of legislation in that it is a transnational effort to control 
or place restrictions on the way that our data can be used, whether by governments or by companies. And it obviously sets restraints on the circumstances in which data can be gathered, stored, passed on and moved out of the jurisdiction. And we can argue about whether those lines are drawn in the right place. But as, a, as an idea, as a piece of regulation of technology, it is, to my mind, a, a sort of flagship. It's one of the earliest examples of humans coming together and saying, we need a completely different approach to laws in the digital age. Do you think it taps into your kind of digital separation of powers way of thinking? Or is it an attempt to do, to, 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 to kind of regulate data in a more traditional sense? Good question. I think it actually, it doesn't, it doesn't neatly fall into the system that I've developed in the book. Apart from what it does is it regulates two of the forms of power that I describe, which is scrutiny and perception control. So scrutiny is the data that is gathered about us, the way we are watched. And uh, perception control is about the information that is shown to us. But often these two things are linked. So the same people who decide what information we see are the same ones who are gathering information about us. And their algorithms and the data they have about us choose to present information based on what we are going to click on or what will hold our attention uh, or what is likely to um, attract us or seduce us. And the GDPR messes with that a bit. It, does, it makes it less easy to gather information for one purpose, sell it on and use it for another purpose. So in that sense, it dilutes that power. Do you think the drafters of GDPR, are they thinking about these things in the right way? Or are they kind of applying the old rules to something that's more complicated? No, I take my hat off to them. I mean, it is imperfect and no doubt it will be out of date before too long. Mm. But as I say, compared to other advanced industrial countries and jurisdictions, including the United States, we are, at least so far insofar as we remain subject to that scheme, Mm. and I don't know if we will after Brexit, uh, we are streets ahead. Okay. And do you think that's the direction of travel? Do you think in the US they're going to be following it? Because I think they're already talking about bringing something similar in California. They are. And and California is also, or well, the, the senator from California has recently brought some new legislation relating to the use of chatbots, which is something that I'm kind of obsessed with because I think that okay. they're a very interesting phenomena. The idea that you can be conversing online with non-human entities mm. that are themselves growing in you know, capacity. Um the U.S. is a different legal and political culture. It's much easier to re- to regulate, for instance, what might be considered speech here in the U.K. But, uh, yeah. and in Europe because, you know, in some countries here, Holocaust denial is a crime and uh, it's a crime to uh, show a picture of a swastika. Mm-hmm. But in the United States, the First Amendment Constitution would make laws criminalizing that kind of behavior unconstitutional. Mm. And so their regulatory response to technology will be shaped by their legal system there and by their legal traditions. Um, someone said to me recently, I haven't fact-checked this, but I think it intuitively sounds right, that in if you use Twitter in Germany, you won't see swastikas because the German government said to Twitter, this is, a, this is an illegal symbol to show in Germany. Okay. You need to sort it out. And Twitter, surprise, surprise, Apparently, their engineers were able to do that, um, which shows also that on a country by country basis, you know, mm. the culture and the politics can change. Mm. But it seems that there's a sort of general direction of travel is in favour of 
regulating technology more. It seems like we've all kind of woken up a little bit to, I suppose, the, the power of data. Yeah. And, um, and, and I suppose that, do you think that could have a, cause, I mean, for example, if you look at driverless cars, right? Mm-hmm. Driverless cars, the, the technology is there to have driverless cars, right? It's getting it's, there, for sure. It's, it's, it's possible. Um, but there's a kind of, I suppose there's a huge, and driverless cars need huge amounts of data. And actually, it could be quite personally invasive, I suppose, using a driverless car. Um, if you can't go over the speed limit, I mean, in in your book you mention that um, there's a, right now you've got you've got freedom. If you want to go over the speed limit, it's up to you. You can take that risk, and you can go over the speed limit. And it's kind of like mischievous. It's fun. It, it can be extremely dangerous, but you've got the freedom to do that and face a sanction. Whereas you know you, you know live in this world where that 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 power is taken away from you. You yeah. just go as fast as the driverless car says. And do you, do you think we're kind of at a point where there's, there's, there's this wider societal backlash of people just saying, well, that actually, we, we, could, we could have driverless cars, we, we could have flying cars, everyone could have a, the technology is there for all, all of us to have a flying car, but there's not widespread adoption because people just, just don't want it. Well, just to unpick all of that, I guess, the... Uh... There is a move towards greater regulation. There are two main limits on it, or at least there's, there's one practical limit and there's one consideration that ought to be a limit. The practical limit is that our politicians haven't yet really caught up to this stuff. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. But I think if you watch, for example, Mark Zuckerberg's testimony before Congress and you look at the level of questioning, you know, how does Facebook make money if it doesn't charge its users? You see legislators in the highest uh, deliberative body in the land basically, who don't understand the internet. And so asking them to regulate incredibly complex, febrile environments, to me, is asking them too much right now. And But I say mm-hmm. it's not it's not good enough. You know, I, I think politicians need to know and understand this stuff. Secondly, though, you know, for those who claim that regulation and even nationalization is the answer, you never want to go full China and have a world where the technologies, uh, because you don't want them to empowering of private tech firms come under the uh, the aegis of the state, which is itself a concentration of power and which doesn't itself always lead to great mm. um, outcomes and results for people. So those are two kind of breaks on the regulatory process. You make a profound point that one of the limits on technology is not technological capacity itself, but people's desire for it which is essentially the logic of the market and what i fundamentally believe is that so long as technologies continue to make our lives more efficient comfortable safe uh, fun entertaining meaningful um, people are going to buy them people are going to do and if technologies aren't doing that then then i'm sure they won't achieve widespread currency but Mm. but the market system is an astonishingly effective way of marshalling demand and channeling it towards the resources that will meet that demand, mm. which I think increasingly is technology. I suppose if you think about, you know, the outcomes of, you know, if you, I mean, because, you know, the outcome of um, transport, you just want to, you want to get somewhere, right? Yep. And so, you know, we're, we're here sitting in, in Haggerston, and if you want to get to Liverpool Street, 
Yeah, I was actually had this the other day. I was very late. I realised I'd, I'd forgotten a meeting. I was very late to get to the meeting. I thought, God, what's, what's the quickest way to get there? And the quickest way was actually to get on a bike. Sure. <laughs> and to cycle down, which, you know, is quite an old-fashioned thing to do. I mean, it's, it's quicker than taking Uber. Yeah. Quicker than driving. And yeah, I suppose that's the thing that I keep coming back to with driverless cars. And I'm asking about driverless cars because you mention them a lot in there in your book. And it, I suppose there's... And, and when you're writing about them... It's almost a given that that is going to become the norm, and I suppose you know my my sense with with driverless cars is that I I, I suppose I'm quite skeptical of them, and that you could say that they're a symbol of AI. Recently, people talk about driverless cars in a in a in a and you know you'll have that, and then you have this change across all all sorts of society. But I mean, one thing that I keep coming back to with driverless cars is like humans so humans are quite mischievous and you know just you know walking out in the road in front of a driverless car just to stop I mean kids are going to do that surely with with driverless cars um, don't you think like lots of little things like that could hinder the progress of some of these maybe systems maybe and look you know it's it's right to be skeptical when people make grand claims about you know, a particular technology necessarily becoming widespread. As it happens, I'm pretty confident that, you know, in our lifetime, we will see a world where there are lots of driverless cars. I mean, I think my kids will find it weird that we used to operate heavy machinery by pressing little buttons with our feet and that 40,000 people a year were slaughtered because of the mistakes that we made doing it Mm. and that you could do it when you were drunk and and that driving was a thing that you did distinctive from actually just being in a vehicle you know in a driverless vehicle in due course you won't have to be concentrating on the road and there are all kinds of the reason i think it will become a ubiquitous technology is there are good economic reasons for it as well you know for instance you might not need to own a driverless car because you only use your car a tiny fraction of the time Mm -hmm. so why would it not be owned collectively by a group of people or by a, a society um they're much more likely in due course to develop efficient routes and efficient traffic systems where the cars interact with each other so mm. as to avoid accidents and blockages. Will there be cock-ups and mistakes and catastrophes and calamities and mischief? Of course there will. Mm. So the idealized world of the driverless car will never arrive. But like all technologies, you know, the train in its time and the car in its time, I, I think, you know, the tech the technology is getting there there's a huge amount of money being pumped into it Mm. um i take nothing as inevitable but i do think when uh, when you're close to developing the technology and you can explain in commonsensical terms why it would make economic sense for it to become a dominant mode of transport which by the way doesn't mean you can't use your bike as well um uh, that's that happens to be one of those technologies which i would be surprised if it didn't achieve widespread currency I take your point about you know the economic arguments, but I just wonder, right? You know, because like, for example, around here there's many groups of kids who are like going around stealing people's phones, but it's some kind of quite lawless behaviour. Yeah. And I just think it would be very hard to control them. How would you stop those kids just spending their days having great fun at the expense of driverless cars? I mean, would you have to? 
I you seem you, to be you obsessed make... with it. I mean, it's like it, it, I yeah. feel like it's going to be you who's out there messing with them, having a great time. Legal I... cheek falls into the dust while you're out jumping in front of driverless cars. But, but what what is your response to that though? What would you do about the mischievous kid <laughs> and the driverless car? I mean, God knows. I mean, yeah. it's it, but, but that's it, actually so an interesting question. If of, they're like, committing the law, would you? Would you have to have a very strong law of Maybe saying, you would. That, yeah, yeah, interfering with an automated vehicle, yeah. in a way that's likely to cause harm? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think it is beyond the ken of human society to develop a set of rules, whether in the form of norms or laws, to allow driverless cars to patrol the streets of London unmolested by groups of feral but, children. But I suppose that that could that very much fits into the wider narrative of the book about you know, tech taking away our liberties to a certain extent. Sure. And this, I think, is real. I mean, I spoke a a while back about um, streaming an episode of telly online, how that's difficult because of digital Mm -hmm. rights management technology. But there's all kinds of little things at the hinterland of the law that we take for granted just now that you can do from time to time and you might not get caught because society doesn't prosecute every tiny wrong that takes place within it. So dodging a bus fare... Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something I've done I'm sure you've never done it but uh, taking more than your fair share at the drink dispenser paying someone cash in hand knowing that they are unlikely that the tax is unlikely to be paid on that mm. these are things which um, about three quarters of British people admit to having done at some point but obviously you can't pay someone cash in hand if the economy is cashless you can't stream that episode of Game of Thrones if the digital rights management technology is so powerful you can't. Um, uh, what, what were the other examples I was giving? I was on a roll there. You can't dodge a bus fare if your smart wallet automatically mm. deducts the fare. Yeah. And, and you made the point correctly about self-driving cars that you know there's a difference between a world where you can drive over the speed limit, subject to the possible implementation of a later sanction, and a world where that crime becomes impossible mm. and that's and that's just about the rules and the technology adds to that the fact of pervasive surveillance mm. the fact that you are almost always going to get caught in the future mm-hmm. and i'll come back to that in a second if you like but if you combine those two things you move from a world of what larry lessig calls doors with signs which say do not enter mm. to locked doors mm. and that's in legal terms i think a very profound shift where the law will be increasingly coded into the world around us mm. um, I, I, I think for law students that is that is definitely something they should be thinking about because I do mm. not think the laws in the future will be at least enforced in the same way the laws in the past were enforced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just um, I suppose some things with tech though is just like people just don't like something so so like smartphones is an incredible development right yeah. and also like let me look at this live streaming. I remember we, we started doing a podcast. That's how Legal Cheek started, 2011, a podcast. And I remember trying to, we were having a conversation about this would be great to do a live stream. And it was just not possible. Yeah. It just the, There was not the tech. Well, I'm sure it existed, but it had been extremely expensive to do it. And now we can just do it from a smartphone. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm very conscious of just that example of the, the pace of change and how technology, it's great that technology can do that. You know, yeah. that's... That's fantastic. But there's, there's certain things that people don't like. So I remember around that time, people thought, I suppose 2011, 2012, 
the, the conversation at that time was like people thought the next thing is glasses, right? And there's this thing like Google Glass, yeah. And everyone's going to have these glasses, and people weren't actually really talking about live stream being a, being a thing. It wasn't really on people's radar. It was like, yeah, it's kind of got smartphones onto the Google Glass, and the Google Glass, and it just didn't work because just people didn't like it. And then Snapchat tried to do the same thing with their glasses, and I mean, it's just people don't like that. And and this is over a short time period but I think I'm noticing a similar thing with internet of things technology in that people are just saying yeah we could we could have our a smart fridge our fridge synced yeah. up to the internet but do we want that I mean for me I, I put driverless cars in that category I don't think I'm obsessed about driverless cars but I mean I think I motorway driving driverless cars. on driverless cars I think um I can I can see that I think in you know although Anyway, anyway, but the, the point of this Internet of Things thing is, is and, and um, Google Glass, and, and this is, an impo- I think, an important wider point with tech, is you can do a lot of stuff with technology, but people don't like certain things. And I think that can really, I, I think it can really hold up the pace of change. And I, I but, think... But what evidence is there that it's held up the pace of change in our lifetime? Well, it has with Google Glass. So that's well. Hold on. Or, or what you have there is glasses. That you and yeah. I can name a hundred yeah. crappy technologies that yeah. were born and died immediately. Yeah. Remember the mini disc. Remember how long that lasted. You can't judge the technological progress of a society mm. by picking individual manifestations of technological progress and saying, "Well, that didn't work," and I don't like the sound of that, and therefore technology itself is going to slow down. I mean, you, you are right in no, the No, but I don't that... think, I don't, I'm not saying it, technology itself will slow down. I, yeah. th- I think it means, because it's hard to know what humans are going to go for or not, it's very hard to anticipate the direction it will go. Well, let, let me say a couple of things. The, the, it is super hard to anticipate the direction. And what I would say is, that, you know, I reckon if we went back to 2011 and looked forward, a lot of what's happened since then was probably, would probably have taken us by surprise. Mm. Um, but I think that was probably my criticism of the book was was that if there was there were certain things that were just these assumptions which were just so confident. I was thinking, well, look, well, it, that might not happen. No, well, if it came across as confident about specific things, um, the thing is, you, you, when you write about the future, you run a it, it's you're treading a tightrope mm-hmm. because on the one hand you can say, well, there's no evidence from the future. And so I'm not going to bother trying to predict what it looks like. And on the other hand, you say the next big thing is the glasses that we'll all be wearing. Mm. And it seems to me that if you are making these kinds of claims and really believing them, then you're being overconfident. And if you're making these kinds of claims, then you're being useless. So what you have to try and do is step back and look at the big picture. Mm -hmm. And I say the big picture is that there are three big trends, the ones that I described at the beginning. Systems are getting more capable. Mm -hmm. Technology is becoming more dispersed into the world around us and not just confined to objects that we would previously have thought of as computers. And data has been gathered at an increasingly powerful rate. And you're right. I give lots of specific examples. And I do think I say in the book, some of these will turn out not to be true. Sure. And and won't come to pass. I I mean, I do think your, your, your Google Glass one is... I, 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 let's have let's do this podcast again in ten years' time and ask if that if that prediction turned out to be wrong or right because you're right obviously Google Glass never came to much and I don't know what's happening with Snapchat spectacles but I do know that um, just last month a product was released which is spectacles that you wear that block out screens for instance as a form of augmented reality technology mm-hmm. and I also know that um, 
Magic Leap in Silicon Valley are working on uh, contact lenses which overlay the world with information that mm-hmm. is useful and fascinating and enriching. And so the next time you and I go up against each other in court or have a conversation and you know that I'm wearing them and they can tell me what your heart rate is mm. and they can rehearse the last conversation that we had and approximate your age or whatever it is, you might think I want a pair of those as well. Maybe not. Maybe it won't come to pass. But don't fall into the trap, I would say, anyone watching this, of saying, well, that particular technology is crap. Facebook's over. I don't use Facebook anymore. Step back and look at the bigger picture, which is that artificial intelligence systems are now beating us at almost every game. And 20 years ago, people much smarter than you and I would have scoffed at the idea that they could beat us at the game of Go. And now we can't touch them, those systems. Uh, They can do things which would previously have been thought to be completely impossible. Diagnosing melanomas better than the best human doctors, Mm -hmm. telling the difference between a fake smile and a real smile, mimicking human speech, reading lips. This is stuff which just a couple of years ago, technologists were confidently saying could never be done. So uh, I'm comfortable, both that a lot of stuff in that book that I predict in an illustrative way will turn out to be wrong, but that the big trends uh, are likely to be true, at least for the next 10 or 20 years. I think that, that takes us nicely onto the law, because that's obviously an area where AI, a lot of people are talking about AI, and it's one of those areas that there's, there's a lot of people are predicting major disruption. I mean, mm. in fact, you know, you're seeing some of it already. Um, there's a lot of conversation about that, um, particularly on Twitter. Um, and, you know, you've obviously you are a lawyer mm-hmm. and you've written this book about technology but you're not there's a little bit about law tech in the book but not a huge amount and that's not a debate that you've been involved in that publicly yeah. um, it's just interesting to get your views on the disruptive impact of tech in the legal Look, it's sector all, I have to say it's also not something I would claim to be expert in there are other people in my family who are uh, mm-hmm. but not myself I mean it seems to me fairly clear that a lot of the work that lawyers do, the tasks that we do, particularly at the junior end, can be done as well as we do them by systems, or at least they can be done more efficiently by a combination of AI systems and humans working together. Mm. Uh, It would strike me as odd if the legal profession looked to the same in 10 years as it did 10 years ago. I think it's already changed pretty rapidly even in the time that I've been in practice. Mm-hmm. Um, the There is still an enormous inefficiency in the legal market. Most claims or potential claims that exist out there go unresolved. The justice system is clogged up mm-hmm. in this country, but more so in other countries. Uh, I think technology is going to play a big part in loosening up access to justice and making law firms work more efficiently. But I am not a great mm. expert in that. And, you know, as a barrister, I, I, my job hasn't changed that much in the last five mm. or six years. I, I, I'm a bespoke advocate who provides oral advocacy mm. um, for clients once their cases reach court. And I provide expert advice on individual questions of law. I'm not naive enough to suppose, though, that if I ever, you know, carried on for 20 or 30 years that the job would be the same because I don't mm. think it will be mm. I the sense is that you know barristers are, are more protected from it because 
you know what you're doing is is you know you're doing the, you know, the advocacy in court sure. so all your the, you know law firms are coming to you as a specialist yeah um but, so, but, but that yeah. assumes that court in the future or at least the dispute resolution in the future will take the form of yes. adversarial yeah. oral argument like it does today and, and absolutely i mean if that changes get you know exactly game over or uh, but Certainly where the conversation in the legal profession is in terms of disruption by technology, it's much more in the, the law firms. Sure. Um, and um, we, we do this big survey annually of over 2,000 trainees and junior lawyers at the, all the big corporate law firms in London. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that we've had for the last couple of years is, is how tech savvy is your firm? Mm. And in addition to ranking them on a scale, they, they write hundreds of comments about kind of what's going on internally with their 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 tech i mean and um and it is it is very interesting to read mm. these comments because there's a big disconnect between the law firm's pr pronouncements <laughs> and you know what these anonymous trainees are writing in the survey as you'd expect but but what comes through a lot in the survey is just you know there's there's, there's very the trainees right now as it stands you know at the firms that are doing these big announcements about their partnerships with these law tech providers the trainees are seeing almost none of that yeah and that's interesting the the, the the thing that's the big thing that is the problem seems to be that i mean law firms are big right magic mm-hmm. circle law firms are, are big and organizationally just coordinating all these many 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 people hundreds of people thousands of people in some cases to to, to implement these new systems takes time sure and there's there's a lot of resistance there but even without resistance, even where you've got firms that are really driving it, that they're only managing to do it, according to our survey, in these very small little pockets. And I suppose that what I take from that is one pace of change. It, it, it gets exaggerated. Sure. Um, and two, people. You know, I mean, I, getting people to do things is not that easy and to work it and there's so many inefficiencies and how how do you I mean this is the question how do you get you might have the system to, to analyze loads of data but how do you get these law firms all working together in the using these systems in an efficient way well I don't know the answer to that question but what I suspect is that is you don't get that by some external body or regulator or government saying do this you get firms doing it themselves when it becomes the most economically efficient way of working or rather when it becomes an economic necessity for them to do it perhaps because other firms are doing it better Mm. perhaps because other companies which aren't thought of as being great legal challenges in the past you know Deloitte or a a PwC Mm. moves into the the legal world and says I'm going to do this differently when that happens, I think you'll see law firms doing differently as well because it doesn't surprise me that law firms which generate an enormous amount of revenue sustain the livelihoods of lots of young lawyers and make very rich lots of older lawyers mm. aren't immediately looking to throw their business model up in the air and tear it up because mm. some new computers have arrived. Um, but if it is right that, that the... Uh, technologies out there are changing the way that legal services can be provided and it becomes less sustainable in time to work the old way Mm. 
then they will be forced to change or they yeah. will die. I suppose, I suppose what I look at this and my prediction would be that it, it won't be the big firms that are driving this change. Yeah. And, it, and it certainly won't be the big accountancy firms that are driving this so. change. I think they're the most inefficient of, of them all from, from what I've seen. I think the change is... But they do have the heft that you sometimes need to implement big digital systems. But I, but I, I think that where the change seems to come from is the, it's the small ones, it's the startups. Yeah, but they and, just get bought by the big companies. That's what happens. But you, 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 you're sorry, sure, sure. You're but undoubtedly they've got, they've, right. But they've got to reach a certain point before there's, that it's worth Absolutely. buying them. And, and, and they're the people who are not, they don't have the relationships, they don't have all the, they, they, they're, they're hungry, you know, they yeah. don't have all the things they're trying to manage, keep it all on the same ways of working so all the partners get their big chunky profits. That you know, you know, they're coming at the bottom and they're, they're forced to be innovative. And, and all that, that conversation around legal tech, it seems to be that, you know, which law, law firm's going to lead it? But, but I mean, really, that I think they should be looking a lot more at, the, at these startups and thinking, yeah. you know, who's who's doing what? And I mean, I, I can speak from my own experience of journalism. I mean, you, you couldn't have done... When I started in journalism, you, you couldn't have done legal cheek. It, it, it couldn't... One of the big... Because you had the internet to publish it, but you didn't have the distribution of content, which was social media. And when, once you got social media, it was like, okay, you've got this massive free distribution of net, network... And it's possible, mm. but but if you look in, you know, just in, in my industry, if you look at the other the, the trade magazines, Legal Week, The Lawyer, etc., th- there was a resistance among all those those guys to initially embracing these this new distribution of content, social media. Of, of course, logically, because mm. they've got their great world, they've got all their relationships around their their magazines and also their websites, which people knew about through their distribution, which was a print distribution network informing them about a website and and so there was no enthusiasm i remember i was at legal week you know everyone was like twitter what's that it's a load of rubbish and you know they they got onto it gradually because they they, but they would rather it didn't exist and and even then and with with legal cheek one of the things that in the early days what generated us stories was we would report what was going on on social media what was and and again the traditional titles were like we don't touch this this is not the way to find a story and ultimately, it was because they were threatened by the, the you know social media networks because they knew it was reducing their power, and, and but but almost no change in journalism has come from those established players. It has been from you know the bloggers, the YouTubers. You know that's where all the interesting stuff is has been. And, and in in the legal profession, you know surely it's got to follow that model. I mean, why why are you going to have you know, put back to the big four. I mean, why? Why? Unless they buy someone. But I think yeah. this is crucial, and mm. I think this is we can maybe achieve a synergy between our thinking here because uh, you are absolutely right that the real incentive to innovate. I think there is an incentive to innovate for all law firms, but the more, most obvious one is going to be for the hungry upstarts, and they might not be lawyers; they might just be principal technologists. And I, you know, I, I have the pleasure of speaking to lots of young mm. folk who are starting um, law tech companies and want advice and thoughts both from my perspective as a lawyer and my perspective as, as a sort of technologist um, and there's a lot of hungry stuff on the horizon you'll see though I reckon that law tech will follow the same pattern that tech more generally has followed in the last 10 years which is because of network effects and the fact that, for instance, to, to train an artificial intelligence system, you need enormous amounts of data. To write mm. algorithms, you need 
software engineers, the most effective combinations will be the young, hungry types being bought or supported or invested in by the old guard. The old guard might not be the big four, though. It might be private equity, or it might be um, venture capital, or it might be accountancy or other professional services firms. So I think... So, so what is it? So what they... you That essentially computing power... Yeah. Costs so money. Processing well. power, access to data. So for instance, you say you want to train a system to... Um, analyze documents on a, on a, on a, on a transaction. Mm. If you're a big law firm, you've got thousands of transactions of that kind in the past, yep. which you can use to train a machine learning system. If you're a startup, you have none of them. Mm-hmm. So, but you might have a smart algorithm and you might have an interesting thought about how to turn that useless or rather that underutilized knowledge and information data into something commercially valuable. Do you think law firms are re- recording their data in a way that can be used? So they've, they've got vast amounts of data, yeah. but is that in a form? I don't know the answer to that question. I think if they're not, they're, they're missing a beat. I just I just wonder, I'm sure they have for the last like year or two. Yeah. But I just wonder if you go back. Well, if it's all on paper, you can turn that into digital form as well. I don't know the answer to that. But I would, as a general principle, what I would say is if law is like any other industry, healthcare, uh, public utilities, transport, the data that you gather, insofar as it can be used lawfully and under data protection laws, the data that you gather can, in some ways, it's not a sort of um, offshoot, like a bit of pollution. Mm. It's, it is itself a valuable commodity. So, but, but so what so sort we, of stuff though would it be that they would have like a law firm or like what an example of what could... so I'll answer that in a second but obviously what I would say about Facebook for instance what's valuable about Facebook is not the purple interface or it, it's the fact that there's the data of 2.2 billion people on there mm-hmm. which it can use to train artificial intelligence systems to find patterns in human behaviour which have never previously been detected mm-hmm. Google's value lies in the fact that we search it 60,000 times a second and it can learn more about the inside of the human mind than anyone could previously in the past. If legal AI systems are going to be machine learning systems, Mm -hmm. that will mean that they will be used to detect patterns from large amounts of data. And so that might mean contracts. So you might have a, a system that can, um, scan a contract and tell you based on previous contracts that it has digested that the following aspects are probabilistically likely to cause trouble mm-hmm. um that's kind of, that's lawyering of a sort it's not lawyering of the kind that humans do yeah, very, very so, so yeah. contractual material um other material relating to deals material relating to so correspondence you might have systems that automatically generate correspondence mm. you might have um so, for instance, in uh, due diligence exercises, you might be able to train systems based on documents that have been scanned in the past and use those to continually develop the sophistication of AI systems, the scanned documents in the future. Mm. It, 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 passing case law is interesting as well, although case law is obviously un- less likely to be a proprietary thing owned by a law firm, but... Uh, 
know, systems are increasingly good, you'll know mm. this, at scanning documents mm. and determining the likelihood that one side will win. Mm. But if you're a law firm, you're going to have loads of examples of pleadings, of statements of case, of skeleton arguments. And you can have systems which scan them and identify trends and patterns that are invisible to the human eye. So that when you feed it with a new one, it can tell you actually there's there's a likelihood that X or Y might happen in this case based on the 10,000 previous cases we've digested mm. or that on appeal it's likely to lose. So uh, the, 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 the know-how, what would previously, I guess, have been called know-how within law firms held within the human mind and sometimes in notebooks, I think there's a lot of valuable data that doesn't take that form as well. With, with Lautica, because I... I always think that the way it's always talked about is that it'll just kind of replace existing tasks at, at law firms. Mm. Like so, you know, document review, that won't be done by trainees anymore, that'll be done by AI. Yeah. Um whereas it seems that it really the, the effect of this technology it, it, it's not it's not just gonna replace stuff, it's gonna be going off in all sorts of different directions. You know, like the point you make about looking at a lot of existing data that you've got to anticipate future risk. Mm -hmm. And I suppose once you start doing that, I mean, the whole role of a lawyer changes and you start, becomes almost a different job. Exactly. But, but, on the, um, but on the point about the capability of these new machine learning, et cetera, systems to do tasks that are currently being done by trainees and associates, one of the things that I, we had this event with Herbert Smith Freehills about um, tech a year ago. And one of the things I remember is, um, one of the associates was saying about in, in litigation, often what you've got is you've got a smoking gun, which is hidden in these documents. And it's not said in an explicit way. It's, it's a sort of innuendo. And it's not, it, it's a subtle use of language of someone who's deliberately trying to hide they're doing something bad. And she was saying, basically, the only way of, that she could think of to actually get that smoking gun just manually just go through them all. I don't, I don't even know where to start with that because I think it is a deeply mistaken piece of okay. logic. First of all, the fact that Herbert Smith's... Uh, um, that Herbert Smith's, uh, or, or whichever yeah. law firm it is, that their advantage, perceived advantage in a particular case is someone spotting a smoking gun. Well, let, me, let me just add to this. So there was also there were other people on the panel. Sure. There, was, there was also, there was a trainee who was like, talking about very innovative uses that they've done of technology. I don't want to, mi I don't want to just, mischaracterize just one, the position. It's just one individual. You had lots of different views. Sure. This wasn't like a firm-wide no, approach. Absolutely. And, and they're a wonderful firm of litigators. Yeah. But uh, I think it's, and it's good to have, you know, different people who've no, got but, different views sorry, on this kind of thing. Let, but anyway, but this, but, on this specific topic... But I am going to press back hard but, on it. But, but, it is a, but it is a, but I think it's a, it's a view that is held, that's a common view yeah. among junior associates at law firms. So let me, let me press back yeah. hard on it as I can. Uh, as hard on it as I can. First of all, the idea that litigation often boils down to a smoking gun is in my experience not accurate but others may disagree sometimes it's true often it's not secondly the idea that humans are better at finding a smoking gun is a fallacy because while it may be that sometimes it is discovered the whole point about machine learning systems is that they see things that humans don't because they don't operate like we do so something that might appear to you and I as lawyers as entirely innocuous in the paper, a machine learning system could be waving in the papers a red flag saying 80% of cases with this feature end up with your side losing. 
And that's something you factor in when you give your client no, advice. And, and, that's, and that would, that's an advantage that machine learning, that's something new, right? They could yeah. look at something and give you a percentage like that. But that's I, something new, but you'd st- still, you know, come on, like humans can be sort of very sneaky in the way that you fool machines, right? Uh, sorry, of course they can, but, but the, 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 the idea that you, are, that you can dismiss a form of technology by focusing in on... It's not to dismiss the whole technology, it's just to highlight a limitation within it. But it's not... What you would Take, for example, the fact that machine learning systems are now better at um, identifying a cancer, a cancerous melanoma, than, or, than an ordinary freckle. Great, that's great. And I'm not, that's not to deny that. So you might have a dermatologist saying, ah, but you see, my experience as a dermatologist, what it really comes down to is this specific factor which I... Mm which I am very good at seeing and a machine is not good at seeing. And that might well be the case. And it might well be the case that a great litigator is able to find a smoking gun. But the truth is that on balance, overall, looked at in the grand scheme, mm. the systems do it better than the doctors. But, 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 but Sure, but in this legal example, yeah. I would say better to have both in that case. And I think a lot of the evidence suggests that, that at, for the foreseeable future, combinations of humans and machines is likely mm-hmm. to be the best outcome so for example document review is a great example that the, the best results come not just from trainees doing grunt work or purely machine learning systems reviewing them but a machine learning system subject to a partner check at the end mm-hmm. um, so the combinations are really important final point I would make about the litigation though is that That, that whole example assumes that litigation in the future will look like litigation in the past. And if it were so, uh, you, may, you mentioned outcomes, and I think, uh, this isn't my idea, it's actually my dad's idea, the idea of outcome-based um, thinking is that what people really want is uh, to be protected from a legal claim, or for the claim to go away, or for them to have no trouble with the law at all. They don't want Herbert Smith or Freshfield to go and win Mm. litigation for them. What they want is for the problems to go away. And so if there are ways, for example, of avoiding litigation Mm. before it even happens that could distort the legal playing field such such that the human ability to spot the mythical smoking gun is reduced in commercial importance, you have to take that into account as well. But but I suppose that would be... Sure. I mean, that, that... But, but that would be a, a you'd be looking over a longer time period with with something. Sure. I, I wouldn't suggest for a second that any of this is, is on our doorstep tomorrow. But I do think the changes are fast and impressive. And the other thing is, you know, you look at sort of what, why people are doing stuff, where they want to get. I mean, right now it seems where a lot of people go to, to law firms is to use your insurance, basically. And then and there's a certain this might be looking at it a little bit cynically, but there's you know there's corporate law firms there's big fees even if they take a small percentage of the, the deal you know it's it's a it's a chunky amount some of that's going to go to to the partner with a large amount some of that's going to be spread around to the associates and there's a wider benefit in society in doing that that gives a lot of jobs a lot of training i mean these these law firms they have a social purpose in that there's they give some people a place to go mm. give them a good salary they give they, they have a big training role which they and and um and why are the clients doing them? Why they're coming to them? A, a lot of it, it does seem to be, yeah. There's probably more efficient ways to do them, but they want to make use of their insurance. Right. Well, the the, the law doesn't exist to give people like me a job or a social purpose. 
um, what people want as solutions and it may well be that I mean I don't think most litigators are going to lawyers to use their insurance or, or as a kind of less or as a kind of more expensive option than one that they could otherwise use maybe big corporate so it's like the bet that. the company thing isn't it it's like you know, bet the company deal, go expensive. If, if, if someone, if something goes wrong, we use the best yeah, firm. Sure. I, absolutely. And that no doubt exists, but you know, speaking as someone who litigates in the courts of England, Wales, the whole time, most litigants aren't huge companies. They're people, they're small businesses, they're mm. medium sized businesses. And in fact, most of those people in those categories and companies are priced out of the legal market altogether just now. So uh, the fact that so many people are turning to, for example, automated um, tax filing systems mm-hmm. is, a, is a sign that uh, what people really want is to get their taxes done efficiently sure. rather than a nice chat with a tax advisor. Um, and the tax system doesn't exist to give that guy a job. Mm-hmm. Sure. So if we're so looking at kind of just to conclude the discussion, so look at kind of the bigger picture, the wider um, things that are going on at the moment in society. Yeah. So obviously, I think we both agree. I think we both agree on that, that tech changes stuff and it keeps changing, maybe faster than you think. I think for me, it just changes something in weird, unexpected ways and I find it hard to predict. But I, I take your point about you're not focusing on the individual examples, you're looking at it as the bigger picture. But if, if you are taking that bigger picture approach, I think one thing that, that, that I'm particularly conscious of at the moment is that right now, like the NASDAQ index, that is arguably in bubble territory, it's certainly historically very high. People are making comparisons to the dot-com bubble. It doesn't seem to be as bad as that. It doesn't seem to be as crazy. But if you do look at the graph, it's it's gone up very, very sharply in the last couple of years. And you've got the most, the biggest companies I mean, they're taking up a big proportion of the S&P 500 are the big tech companies. And so we're at a time where big tech, tech in general, is, is powerful. Mm. I mean, I was like before this, this podcast, I was having a coffee in a coffee shop around the corner. All the conversations were around me were kind of about innovation and tech. And th- those conversations weren't happening a few years ago. And I, I, I'm not sure the people who were having those conversations were involved in the tech industry. I think they they may technology. Uh, I th- there you go. Yeah, but I think they may have been involved in marketing, wh- whatever. It, but it's a it's a hot topic at sure. the moment, and it's dominating the discourse. Your book has has come out. I mean, it's great timing from the point of view of selling a book. But do you think this is something we might look back on and we think, well, that that you know, ten years from now we would say that well, that was a book that was kind of of its time and it was written during that tech bubble. Well, do you think that the uh, the dot com bubble? Ho- Bursting halted the march of technology. Then no, I mean some people say it wasn't a bubble. Some, yeah. You know, if you held on, you're, you're well, not to all companies. Not I mean, if there was some kind of correction in the market, or if Google or Facebook or Microsoft or Apple went under, or if technology, for some unanticipated reason, wildly changed course and direction, mm-hmm. um, anyone who tries to write a book about the future is going to be held ransom to that. But as I say in the book. I don't make predictions like that. I, I, I've got no idea what will happen to Google and Facebook. 
Mm. I've got no idea what happened to Google, but what I do anticipate is that the search function in the future will not result, will not mean typing words into a little bar. It'll be much, I, I predict it'll be much more like talking to an Alexa. I don't use, um, I, I don't know what will happen to Twitter, but I do know that chatbots in the future aren't going to be disembodied lines of code. They're going to have faces and names and they're going to be persuasive in a way that today's simply aren't. I think the responsible thing is to not look at the economic cycle, mm -hmm. don't look at the political cycle, look at the life cycle of you and I and our kids and the world that we're moving into, identify the big trends, because I think it's so easy to say, ah, oh, well, who knows what the future holds, and then just take the decision to do nothing. Sure. And I think if we do that, then we will regret it. I'd rather see us prepare for the future that appears to be on the horizon. And if we happen to be over-prepared for the first time in human civilization, um, good for us. Mm. But the risks of being under-prepared are so great that it would be prudent to, to get cracking now. And, and on that topic of being prepared, I mean, what's your advice for... You know, students who are sort of thinking of becoming lawyers, sure. should they be learning to code? Should they be going for the bar rather than solicitor's profession? I'm not the person to ask for career advice for aspiring young lawyers. There are just people out there who are much more expert about that than me. I, I, all I can say, my call to action is for people as citizens, which is that we cannot continue to treat technology just as consumers. We have to recognise that it has consequences for democracy for freedom for power that are political in nature that are as profound as almost anything uh, that we've seen in many generations of human life and we all need to be better versed in the effects of technology on our lives uh, to, to try and give some career advice it, it pays to understand the commercial workings of the internet it pays to understand the basics of how data works, how it's gathered and flowed in society, flows in society. Uh, it pays to be familiar with the broad trends in technology. If you're working in commercial law or in anything to do with the market economy, all three of those things will stand you in good stead. So um, here's the book. It's a, it's a great read. Um, really interesting um, reflections covering all those topics that Jamie's mentioned just now. Um, lots for aspiring lawyers um, and uh, yeah it's on it's on Amazon um, do, do go out and buy it um, Jamie thank you very much thank you Alex. great speaking cheers